Blog Talk Radio. Services to adult survivors of child abuse. 
and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. You can find our mission statement and a lot more about NASCA on our website, which is naasca.org. I want to read you um, the uh, information that Val sent us. Um, as I mentioned, her, uh, she is our special guest tonight. She's from Jarrettsville, Maryland. She's a longtime NASCA family member, a child abuse survivor. She's an activist and author um, and a longtime member, of course, of NASCA. Uh, she grew up in a lower-middle-class neighborhood and appeared to everyone as a happy, bright little girl who was a bit shy. However, she had a secret that she would keep for almost 50 years. As a victim of incest from about age four, she carried her shame and sadness through most of her life until she learned to share her story with other survivors. In sharing her story, she authored the book, the Monsters Game. It's written under a pseudonym of Little Girl 413. She also is a contributor to anthologies, uh, Letter to a Monster by Caroline De, I'm going to butcher her name, Chevigny, and Purple Sparks by Stephanie Y. Evans and Charnel D. I'm sorry, Shamel D. Miles. She was featured in multiple issues of Memorabilia Magazine in 2014, and her most recent contribution is as a co-author of the Amazon bestseller, Stop the Silence, Thriving After Child Sexual Abuse by Dr. Pamela J. Pine and 23 other sex abuse survivors, our Kim Lakin being one of them. As a CSA survivor and advocate, Val is current president of Race Against Abuse of Children Everywhere. That acronym is R-A-A-C-E. She is no longer afraid to speak out and is dedicated to stopping the silent epidemic through her work with Race, R-A-A-C-E, and other organizations such as NASCA. As a speaker, Val hopes that her voice resonates with other survivors, teaches all who care for children, and warn the monsters that they can no longer hide. Boy, do I agree. Thank you so much. And uh, without further ado, Val, I'm going to unmute uh, your line and uh, bring you on with us. And just, again, thank you for uh, coming back and sharing your story with us again this evening at NASCA. So welcome, Val. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here again. Well, we're just so, um, it's an honor, you know, really to, ha to have you back. Um, and gosh, we need so many more vowels. Um, we have a lot of vowels. We, I know a lot of vowels. Um, um, but we are all uh, unique in our contribution and, and it seems like you are uh, very, very impactful and your voice is very inspirational just by reading your bio. I'm, I'm very intrigued to hear more. Um, so in, in, in that, um, Spirit, Val, you know, as we, we normally uh, do these special guest night shows, um, just to have some continuity because, as you know, we archive the shows um, in terms of how the shows um, basically um, evolve. If you wouldn't mind just giving us a little bit to paint a picture, a little bit of backdrop of uh, maybe your earliest memories as a child, where you lived, who was in your family, and briefly just talk about uh, your experiences um, as we uh, go through the 90 minutes, which, as you know, the clock winds down very quickly. Um, and uh, again, as a reminder, um, this is your show. You're 
totally in control, so you can share what you wish. And if there's a question that I ask or anybody else asks that you are not comfortable talking about, um, you are in control and can um, and and can decline. Um, and uh, it is your it is your uh, time tonight. Um, this is your show, so you are you are the leader here. Um, but without further ado, if you wouldn't mind just painting us a picture of you and um, uh, your beginnings, I, that would be great. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for the introduction. And just sorry, Wendy, um, there's pretty much nothing that I um, can't answer or, you know, or I'm willing to answer. So um, any, any questions that anyone has is fair game. Um, I'm all about advocacy, and um, I think, you know, sharing is part of that advocacy. So to go back many years, um, so I, I grew up in the inner city in Baltimore, and it was a lower middle class neighborhood, just, you know, working families, um, pretty pretty normal life from the outside. Um, however, from around the age of four, um, I um, was a victim of incest by my father, um, and um, it it started, you know, with um, just some touching, and of course. I was four. I didn't know what to say or do or didn't know even what it was. Um, so, I, you know, of course, I never told anybody. Um, so that continued, and it kind of escalated, you know, through the years until um, I'm not sure when the actual last time, but it was somewhere around age 16, I believe. Was, um, is when it stopped. Um, so I never told anybody because I, you know, at first I wouldn't have known what to say if I did. Um, and another reason is so my mother was was pretty harsh. Um, you know, um, she was the disciplinarian, and um, she would you know hit first and ask questions later. So. You know, I grew up, you know, fearing her. So I, you know, certainly wasn't going to say anything to her because I, you know, thought I would get in trouble. Um, so I kept the secret for um, almost 50 years. <laughs> um, other than I, I did tell my husband, um, I, I've been married for 41 years, and I told him probably about a year into our marriage. Um so I'm not sure what else I can give on the background. Well, well, first of all, I, thank you for sharing what what you shared, and and I, you know, I too um, appreciate and believe believe in just the full transparency. And I think it's a a very very difficult. Um, I find it, even though I've talked about it a lot, um, to acknowledge that you know your father um, tr- uh, behave, you know. Uh, treated you that way, um, abused you that way. Um, we, I, I've walked in your shoes, and I can understand um, what that's like. Um, our stories aren't 100% the same, but a lot of times the feelings are very similar. And uh, mm-hmm. what you described is, is, as you know, so helpful for those listening because um, mine began at three, 
And I think as a young child with a father, when you don't know any different, we don't know any different. You know, we're our normal, I think, is what we experience. Um, we don't know that it's not right. It feels like nurturing or what's supposed to happen. And it's sometimes we don't recognize um, what it is. And as you mentioned, you were 16 years old, but we don't, it's, it's hard to discern that um, as it, um, it evolves. Um, and it sounds like it evolved for you. And so I think just even talking about what happened, um, I, didn't rec- I didn't recognize what molestation was until I was in my late 40s. Um, I didn't know that it wasn't normal for a father not to, to touch his daughter in that way. Um, so I think even you just talking about it and naming it helps other people realize what the boundaries should be. Um, so I thank you for mm-hmm. that. It's really important. Um, sure. And another thing that um, I'd like to mention um, is because I was, you know, um, molested by my father at such an early age, it led to abuse by several other um, people also. Um, because you know, once you're um, once you've been sexually abused, um, it makes you vulnerable to other perpetrators. Because you know, um, I was just the type of child they were looking for. You know, um, even though mm-hmm. they don't know that you've been abused before, they know um, that they sense your you know your vulnerabilities. So um, yes, they yeah, do. I was, yes. I was um, um, a total of five different men. Um, several of them were related and some were not. Wow. But all of them were known to my family, all of the perpetrators. Do you think you mentioned that your mother was a disciplinarian? You were obviously, that didn't feel like a safe space for you to tell your mother. Do you think that your mother knew exactly what was going on? I definitely did not have a safe place. Um, and as far as my mother's concerned, um, you know, I never told her, um, because by the time I, you know, really, um, had started my healing journey, um, at that point I decided that I wasn't going to tell her because it's like, what does it solve at this point? She was, you know, um, approaching 80 at the time, um, so I had made the decision not to fully disclose to everyone until after my mother passed. But Mm -hmm. um, as far as she believed that she lived in denial because she had to know, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there there were just too many instances where she had to know something. And and I think, um, you know, whatever he would tell her, it was easier for her to accept the explanation than to live with what the truth was. Right. So, and, you know, never having that discussion, that's just my opinion of, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what um, her role in it would be. Um, But definitely Mm -hmm. her, um, her anger and and her, um, mental condition I, I, I think she was also bipolar although mm-hmm. it was, um, she she was hospitalized several times for quote unquote nervous breakdowns um, mm-hmm. 
So I I was never told what her official diagnosis was, but knowing, you know, a lot about bipolar behavior, I think that's probably, you know, the case. So that, you know, that up and down, you know, that, you know, there was lots of good. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that, you know, what people tell me that I'm resilient and um, I, I think that comes from the fact that there really was more good in my childhood than bad. You know, even mm-hmm. though, you know, I had a lot of horrible things going on, there was still a lot of good that went on. And especially, you know, later in my life and, you know, um, my early adult life, getting married and everything, that, you know, was just, um, which I, I, I believe is, you know, what adds to resiliency. That's interesting. I um, appreciate you saying that. I actually had never realized that about my own, you know, I'm just obviously thinking about my own and, and that there were some positives and I'm wondering uh, how much that plays a role in the resiliency and also the drive to know that healing is possible and that there's a, there's a, a, a brighter future ahead um, and that the status quo or what, what happened doesn't have to define what happens moving forward. Right. So I, right. Um, I don't know if you ever, so I don't know if you've read this article, but um, I was very curious um, after I was finally able myself to speak the words of um, being sexually abused by my, by my biological father. I was very curious as to why a man, um, obviously besides maybe that he was a victim of sexual abuse, but what drives fathers to molest their daughters or anybody to molest anybody but specifically for me this was biological fathers to molest their daughters and I actually found an article in the Oklahoman newspaper I don't know if you've seen this one and it talked about um, there was kind of this profile if you will of a man um, a father who had molested his daughter and um, they described the him as um, not like white collar um, not all, you know, 100%, but that was generally speaking, um, middle class, mm-hmm. um, and had a um, spouse or significant other that was, um, um, that had mental illness, um, which I thought was very interesting because I had never really realized that my own mother um, had mental illness, and she does. Um, but my father, when I read this article, um, it, it kind of put some of the puzzle pieces together for me. So I don't know if you've ever heard of that article or read that article, but I thought it was very interesting. You just mentioned that your mother was bipolar, and so that just struck me um, and reminded me of this article that I had read. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've, I've read, you know, um, many articles about, you know, um, why pedophiles are the way they are and, the, um, most articles have a lot in common, and um, the, the biggest thing besides, you know, people who were molested as children is that it's a control thing. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, true pedophilia is more about control than sex. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's very complicated and hard to really identify like who is going to be a potential, um, you know, abuser 
Yeah, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. My father was abused as a child. Um, I never confronted him. I never wanted to confront him. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't know what, you know, where mm-hmm. it came from with him. You know, was it, you know, um, something that he brought from his childhood? Um, I definitely can see, like, my grandmother was real hard, and. Um, I, I could see, like, the control factor coming in there, you know, mm. that, that would have had no control growing up, um, you know, and talking to some of my aunts and uncles, you know. Um, my grandmother was pretty harsh growing up um, with, with her kids growing up. Um, and so, you know, I think that could have played into it. And I, I know, I mean, I know that, you know. Always, you know <laughs> My mother was a you know a control person too, so you know um, he didn't. I, I don't think he had a lot of control in his life. Mhm. Mhm. And and what I was going to say is you know, not that having answers as to why someone's motivated to do something, we're not. It's not condoning the behavior. I just find that having answers helped me develop actually more compassion for myself. Um, there was mm-hmm. something that. You know, sometimes we won't get all the answers, but sometimes we can we can get some of the answers. And for me, um, I always ask questions to, to you, and thank you for for answering them. Um, sometimes, you know, having the answers helps to. Uh, um, I think, like I said, develop develop some compassion, um, and also to help educate. Yeah, so, that's where I was going. For me. Um, it's not so much trying to understand my father, um, but um, it, it, if I'm going to be an advocate and, you know, the work I do with race um, in preventing child sexual abuse, part of that is understanding or trying to understand, you know, who a perpetrator is um, so that, you know, we can carry that message on to educate other people of, you know, the um, types of people to look for, you know, but um, as we all know, it, it, they're not easy to spot. <laughs> right. Um, right. I mean, no, no one, um, now that I've come forward, no one in my family or my friends or anybody ever suspected my father. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. he, he, which I think, I think sometimes too makes it harder for, for the the person who experienced the maltreatment to actually speak of it in a public way because we're even sometimes acknowledged to ourselves when we know that on the outside, you know, um, our, you know, your father presented himself in a way where people would have a very hard time believing the truth. doesn't mean that it isn't mm-hmm. the truth. I think, you know, it, I, I had so much trepidation myself um, because I thought, you know, who's going to believe this based upon his public persona? And I think we have to realize that, well, when one of three girls are sexually abused before the age of 18, there are a lot of perpetrators out there. And so we have to break the stigma of, you know, thinking that nothing's going on, you know, beneath a perfect, uh, you know, exterior. I think we have to let go of that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's one thing that I, you know, push for in my advocacy um, is getting people to understand that um, you 
you don't know who the abuser is and you know um and they hide pretty well you know as being appearing normal <laughs> mhm yes yes exactly. and that's a hard thing for people you know when i you know started telling people um after my mother died in 2020 um you know people were like you know, they they believed me, all except for my my youngest brother. But um, ever you know, everybody believed me. But they like are, are have a hard time coming to terms with that it was him. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> because they saw him as this you know totally different person. And it's it's hard to. Um to be able to release that truth to your family. You know, we're, we're tribal by nature. Um, we love our family. And it's hard mm-hmm. um, when the players who were there during the time um, don't 100% completely, not all of them support us. You came forward, it's, you're very courageous, knowing that um, the truth is there and it may not be an easy truth um, within a familial sense to live with, uh, for everybody to live with. Um, and I commend you because I think it's the fear of that, that that keeps us silent. And it does take a lot of strength, and you have a lot of strength. Yeah, and I was fortunate that um, I had started my healing journey long before I, you know, um, came out to, to my family. Um, I, I mean, I didn't tell my brothers until after my mother died in 2020. <laughs> um, you know, I'm 64. <laughs> so, um mm. Yeah, but I had, you know, already, I had told other people, um, but I was like, you know, I'm going to tell you this, but, you know, make sure it doesn't get back to my mother or my brothers, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. So I had already been through that part of it. Um, So I was to the point where I'm very comfortable speaking about it now. Um, You know, when I first started speaking about it about 10 years ago, um, (laughs) I, I couldn't talk to somebody about it without, you know, crying hysterically. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I've, you know, worked through so much of the, you know, shame and guilt and all that stuff that I'm in a good place now where um, I can talk about it and put put it in its place and, you know, not, not feel so ashamed of saying it. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a wonderful place to be. And I think others that are listening, it's very inspiring, inspiring and encouraging to hear that because it is, it is very frightening, at least in my own experience, to oh, um, use really have, your, your first experience. Sorry. Yeah, but you have this view in your head of what's going to happen if you tell people, right? You know, um, mm-hmm. one of the poems in my book is about opening the floodgates and you know, this is before I was telling people, and this is how I felt. Like, if I start telling people, then, you know, the the dam's going to be open, and I won't be able to close it, and these people are just going to get washed away with the flood, you know. Um, <laughs> that was my, my vision of, you know, like, what was going to happen if I started telling people. And, um, you know, I found that um, the fear of telling people is worse than actually the telling. <laughs> Yeah. So, 
you know, when I actually started telling people, it's like, oh, wow, like, they're not blaming me. They're not, they're not mad at me for telling. They're not, um, you know, they, they were supportive. Like, I, I had total mm-hmm. support, everyone that I told. Um, so, you know, it was, it was really encouraging for me to go on and tell my story um, with, without that fear of, you know, oh, I'm going to tell somebody and they're going to hate me or they're going to, you know, um, they're going to blame me or they're, you know, all those things. And I know many people experience the opposite of what I've experienced. Um, you know, I've heard many, many stories of people whose families totally disowned them because they, you know, told their story and, you know, or lost friends because their friends don't want to hear it. You know, it's like um, it's the whole taboo thing around it. Um, mm-hmm. I've been so, so fortunate. Um, like I said, the, the only person to date that, um, well, it's actually, you know, two people that have said something. Um, my youngest brother hasn't talked to me in two years. So I, have been, I didn't even personally tell him because he wouldn't even talk to me um, because I had blocked my father after my mother died. Um, but um, he, he does know, and, and he and his girlfriend think that I lied about it. And then one other person who um, is a second cousin, um, she told somebody that I shouldn't tell anybody because um, she loved my father and she knew him. And um, why, why am I bringing it out now? Um, I should just keep quiet about it. And I'm like, you know, and she didn't say that to me. She, you know, I got that second hand. But um, it's like, okay, I got a lot of work to do here <laughs> because yeah. if this is the way people are thinking, that's the kind of thinking that I need to change. <laughs> In my advocacy, like I need to teach people that, you know, um, that's totally the wrong response to the situation. It's like you, you can't tell people to shut up. <laughs> yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. um, but other than that, um, I've had tremendous support, and, and I feel very fortunate about that. And, and I hope that, you know, as other people get the courage to disclose, um, I hope they get the same support as I've gotten. Yeah, I, I would wish that on anyone. And I'm, it's, I'm so happy that you had that support. I mean, that is, that is huge. Um, and I remember um, one time um, my therapist told me, you know, don't take the way that people react when you tell them personally because, it's really they're reacting or they're saying something that they'd really, that's what they'd say to themselves. That's how they would react themselves. So it's Mm -hmm. not a reflection on you. It's a reflection on them. You know, what they say is what, you know, they would say to them. And I thought that was helpful, but you're right. Um, We have to educate people because um, secrecy and silence is the most prolific enabler of the cycle of abuse to continue and abuser to go under the radar and continue to abuse. Um, and there are seldom, seldom is there only one victim um, of a perpetrator. And um, you have opened um, the door if another one um, of his victims or any victim um, of anyone, you have opened the door for them um, and helped to open that door um, 
for them to say their truth and for them to speak. And it also sounds, before I break to the panel, it also sounds like you told your husband after one year of marriage. Is that correct? Did I hear that correctly? Yes. Yes. Or somewhere around there, yes. Yeah. So you married someone you felt very safe with, obviously. Yes. Um, I've been very fortunate. Um, he's, wow. Um, that's incredible. I think you can kind of talk to that because, um, you know, I had at one point, you know, up, up until that point, you know, just figured I would never tell anybody. Um, I, you know, I believed that I wasn't letting it affect me. And, you know, I wasn't going to be one of those people that's like, you know, oh, what was me because this happened to me and, you know, and I wanted to pretend I had just a normal life. But um, so after I had been married, you know, for a short time, um, my husband was, you know, doing a lot with my family and, you know, and especially with my father. My, my family are hunters and fishers and, you know, et cetera. So, and my husband was, you know, doing a lot with um, my father, and um, he, he he didn't have a father growing up, and I felt like he was, you know, forming, you know, more like a father image with my with my father, and I was like, that just creeped me out. So that kind of pushed me to tell him because mm-hmm. I didn't want him to get too close. Um, because I know eventually he was going to know the truth and I didn't want him to be devastated by it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I, I didn't want him to, you know, feel like he had lost a father in the process. <laughs> right. Or, or, you know, omission is almost, I mean, you would have betrayed his trust. I mean, I'm not wanting to put words in your mouth, but I mean, mm-hmm. you told him the truth and I think that that is something that a partner does. Um, mm-hmm. You know, withholding that is, I won't say betrayal, but, um, I mean, to me, you know, it's complete transparency in a marriage, and you told your husband. So I, I you know, I commend you for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, you know, a lot of women choose not to tell their husbands for whatever reason, and I can understand that. Um, because, again, it's the fear of telling, you know. Like I said, it, it's usually mm-hmm. worse than the actual telling, but, um, you know, some people feel like if I if I tell my husband this, like he's not going to love me anymore. You know, mm-hmm. he's going to me. Or, you know, or or if I tell him, then it might get out to other people. You know, that's a big fear too. Oh, I got to be mm-hmm. careful who I tell because then it's going to get out to everybody, and I'm not ready for that. You know, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you have to have that person that you know you can trust, and then you have to have you know. You have to get over the fact that you're not going to hurt that other person. If that if that person is going to be so hurt by you telling them something like, then they must not love you as much as you think they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if they can't support you a hundred percent when when you tell you know your story, then there's something wrong with you know that relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can understand, you know, some initial, um, you know, shock or whatever, you know, when you initially tell somebody. And my, my husband didn't have that. He was just, like, right on board 100% right from the beginning um, mm. that, you know, he, he believed me and he was 
you know, fully supported me. Um, but not everybody is going to have that. Like you're, there, there's so much fear around the telling um, mm-hmm. that I have to overcome. And I, I think that like, that was really hard for me um, back when I you know, first started. Like when I first started telling people other than my husband, you know, after that I went another 30 years before I told anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, at least 30 years. I've probably got 30 years. Um, and, you know, I, I just, um, I, I, it still was a secret, you know, like he knew and I knew, but it was still like our secret. And I made mm-hmm. a promise like, to anybody not to act on it because, I mean, he, he wanted to protect me. He wanted to go, you know, he, he was going to, you know, go um, go after my father, not physically, but, you know, um, but I was like, nope, you know, you got to keep the secret, which there now that I know more about, um, you know, everything around child sexual abuse and, you know, um, disclosure and everything. I don't think it's really fair for us to tell somebody and then say, don't tell anybody, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, but, right. um, you know, it, it's just all really difficult um, when you're first telling your story, it's, you know, and, and everybody has, you know, a, a, a different feeling about it. But I think most of us share, share that fear of telling someone like, how they're going to react. Yeah. And it's usually not how we think. <laughs> it is definitely uncharted territory, isn't it? You know? Yeah. It is. It is. And I think that's a great point that you bring up because we need to be compassionate with ourselves. Um, when we start to um, bring out the uh, events that happened in our in our childhood, um, to give yourself some grace and and to um, you know, I think that it's a good time to just be gentle with oneself. And I, I mm-hmm. you knew when you were ready. Sounds like you knew when you were ready. Yeah, and you, you knew know, what that looked like for you. For me, it didn't happen overnight. Um, I first went online to, um, I don't know if people are familiar with dailystrength.org, but, um, you know, it's, you know, you go there anonymously, um, which was great for me. I didn't even know at the time, like, what I was looking for. I just, you know, kind of was led to that website, and I found the incest survivors um, forum on there. And at first I was just, like, reading other people's, you know, stuff. And, and then I would, like, respond a little bit more, you know, respond a little more. And, and I was able to eventually, like, totally open up there. And that really is what opened the floodgate for me to be able to start even identifying my own feelings. Because, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, until then, I never let myself get mad or sad or, you know, the, the only feelings I ever had about it and I would push them away would be the guilt and the shame. But, mm-hmm. you know, I never let myself feel any of those feelings until that time. And, I mean, I spent a year on that website almost every night and, and, and writing the poetry that ended up being in my book. Um, and I, I, I cried every single night. You know, um, but it, it was cathartic. It was like... Um, just it, it it taught me so much about myself and um, put terms to things that I never really 
um, had put terms to before. Like they were terms that I had heard before, but not that I had really applied them to myself, you know, like grooming, mm-hmm. you know, um, and triggers and, you know, a lot of the words that we use around, you know, our survival and understanding our survival. Um, mm-hmm. I, I had applied them to my life and, and that, that was the open door for me to um, begin becoming a true advocate because now I could really speak freely and comfortably about my own life so that I could help others. Mm. On that on that note, I'd like to break to the panel. You've got a lot of support on the line. Val, if that's okay. Great. And uh, Kim Lake and I'd like to invite you on to um, speak with Valerie. Thanks, Penelope. Hi, Val. Thank you so much. Hi, for, thanks for sharing tonight. I I know that I can relate a lot to your story. Of course, there's a lot of pieces in there, and um, I'm so glad that you are able to finally speak up and you can talk about it. And I loved what you said because this is really telling to me. Um, 33 years later, uh, that if you tell your your significant other about this and they don't act and react with support and love, that they're probably not the right people for you. And I, I told my husband when we were dating, and his response was, oh, well, you're fine now, right? So I remember thinking, just, oh, that's weird. That's, a, you know, because <laughs> I don't think I'd ever gotten that response before. And <laughs> and so it was, yeah, and I have struggled, and I, and I believe that this is part of, because of also I had a, a dad who was very much enabled by my mom, and my mom was more the breadwinner. I don't think she was more the disciplinary, but she was more the breadwinner of our family. And my dad was home more. But um, I found out later that my mom, and I knew that there had to have been abuse, and I, but my mom had actually had a very inappropriate relationship with her brother for many years, up into her, actually up until through the time she was married. And mm-hmm. I remember hearing that and going, Oh my gosh, that is so much dysfunction that I just can't even comprehend. And I'm, I'm over here trying to change it all, you know, and do better for my family. And mm-hmm. it, and then it starts to make more sense to, well, okay, that makes sense. Why when I told her what my dad was doing to me, she chose him instead of chose to do something for her daughter who was a child at the time and should not have been made to feel that that was okay and it was Mm -hmm. just normal but um i didn't know all of her history either so you know i i'm sorry that you had to go through that as well i mean of course you know on this show and and what we do all of all of us have stories and it's but it's just always hard to to hear the ins and outs of every 
details the story and then it starts to relate to you and then you start to go, oh gosh, I'm so sorry you went through all that. And I, yeah, and I'm sorry you went through it all. So, um, but um, I mean, it, it sounds like, you know, you're, you know, working through it also. And my dad is still alive. My mom isn't. And um, so I have kind of the opposite. And I was groomed, and I know this, and I'm doing a lot of therapy on this right now, which is great. Um, I know I was groomed and raised to believe that the men can do no wrong. It doesn't matter what the men do. They can do no wrong. And mm-hmm. I know that I went into my marriage, and that's why I've been in my marriage for 34 years. And I'm just now getting out is because I've had that mindset for so long that I didn't even realize that I'm being abused in a different way. It's not the same as I was growing up, so that's better. But (laughs) there's a different way that's happening, and it's been happening, and I didn't even recognize that because of the way that I had been groomed so much. So it's such an eye-opener. It really is, I think, such a, a gift to us to be able to start to realize and recognize and dig deeper and understand why, you know, why why we are how we are and why we want to change that because we want to make the world better for other, other children. So <laughs> all of that. Thank you, Val, for everything that you do. I, I appreciate, appreciate everything you do and for relating, being so relatable. Thank you. And I'm, I'm, so, I'm sorry that we have to share this commonality, but um, it's good to have people like you on our side. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to say, I know that Lori is on the phone. She would love to. Yeah. And um, we have Philip as well. So I'm going to let you go. And Philip. Yeah. And Philip. Yeah. I'm going to let you take back over, Penelope, and, and I'll keep listening. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Beth. Thank you, Kim. So I'm going to bring on Philip. I'm just uh, I'm just bringing on our panel in the order that they called in. So Philip, I'm muting your line. And do you have any questions for Val, Philip? Well, I kind of wanted to respond to something that Kim said, if that's okay. Sure. Um, I guess like women are taking back their power because of like men used to be really bossy or whatever. I'm just wondering what everybody else's opinion is on that. Well, I think I'd like to uh, defer to Val on that. And I think in terms of taking back your power, um, I think, you know, we've talked about, or Val, you know, talked about a couple things that I heard, and Val, I don't want to speak on your behalf, but it was a not only disclosure and breaking the silence, but also... Um, sounds like you found a support group online of um, sexual abuse survivors where it was it was support that you went on every night for about a year. Um, mm-hmm. And I'd like, to me, that sounds like someone really taking their power and finding a community um, where you're not alone. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it was the beginning of taking my power. Um, it, it kind of built my courage up. And like I said earlier, it helped me to to understand myself and 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 let me experience the the feelings that I should have experienced all along. 
um, I, I think um, I came out of that stronger. And then also my advocacy work um, also, you know, gives me my power back. Um, you know, when, when I'm doing something that hopefully is, you know, um, reducing the number of um, victims, then, you know, that's, that's, I want to take the power away from abusers. Did that answer your question? Kind of. Not really, but it's okay. Do, do you want to ask more? Um, no, I'm not kind of shy, actually. Okay, well, thank you, Philip. Thank you, Philip. It's a, it's a provocative question, and I think um, there's a lot of um, a lot of examples that you know we've heard today, and that I think continue to come up about you know taking taking the pen into your hand and and, and putting your your own pen to the paper and, and writing um, and writing the dialogue, um, writing the prose um, of of and having control of what you put down on the paper, um, if you will. And I I think um, there've been a lot of um, examples of that tonight. But I'll yeah. put you back and on you know, the only mode. You know what I found about writing, um, writing about my story, especially back now, when I first started writing it, I could only write it in poetry because I couldn't say those things in, you know, regular prose. Um, I found that by doing that, it helped me to see the child. You know, it was like, mm. okay, this did happen to a child. It helped me to look at it through the lens of that child. And certainly as an adult, we ask ourselves, like, you know, um, you know, well, why didn't you tell somebody? Well, you could have did this or you could have done that. Um, because as an adult, we think, oh, yeah, you know, you should have told somebody. You should have did this. You know, you, you should have said no. You, you know what I mean? All those things that we throw on ourselves. Um, but in writing it down and then, because I formulated it into a book and I had to, you know, read it over and over when I was editing and all that stuff. And it's like, you know, I could see that child and that was so helpful to see the child and not, not look through these adult eyes that, you know, tend to, to blame ourselves. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. I never thought of it that way. But you, you took the inner critic out. Or the adult clinic. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we we have to reach that child in our healing, or, or I did. I I had to actually reach that child um, to be able to tell myself that, you know, I'm not the guilty person here. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's, you know, kind yeah. of how I measure my feelings. Um, you know, we all have, or I shouldn't say we all, but a lot of us have that little voice in the back of our head. Um, that tells us you should have did this and you could have done that. Well, the less I hear that little voice, the more I know that I'm, you know, healing. And that mm. little voice, you know, it still shows up once in a while. You know, that little devil on your shoulder, whatever you're going to call it, you know, it, it's still there mm. every once in a while. But um, most of the time, I'm like, you go to hell. That, that little girl was innocent. <laughs> and that's right. That's right. I call that the inner parent, you know, you know, uh -huh. I've, I've raised, 
I've raised myself. When the child's voice has become a parent, and I'm a, I'm a really protective parent. So I, I call that the parent voice, which is good, you know. Mm-hmm. Someone's watching out for that child. But I had to raise myself in order to do it. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of feeling. It's a good way of putting it. Thank you. I'm going to bring Lori on. Uh, Lori, you are on with Val. Hey, Valerie. I got to first Hi. tell you, you're very, very, you have a very generous soul to you for all you've been through. You know, you, after all this time with such a secret like that, you could have gone the other way and become a very angry person, which you do have the right to uh, to do. I'm curious. Um, well, first I'll tell you, I'm, I'm similar to you. I grew up with the pedophile, um, and it was every night thing from... As far as I can say, when I was born up until 16, couldn't get away. But I had no problem telling anyone when my niece had her child living in that house and he told me what he's going to do to her, the same as me, I had to come out and tell everybody. Well, I had no choice. So, of course, you know, the whole family turned their back on me. I did get to ask his sister and what he did to her. And she just started crying. So I just told her to stop. I don't need to know. I don't want to put that into a flashback, but there's a history of it. It turns out the older you get, and I found this, some of the the brothers and siblings, even the ones from that generation, Passed down to the newer generation, the story of, say, you or me, and they change it. And as soon as it becomes told to people that you don't even know, <laughs> some weren't even born when it was happening, but the same story is being told. Mm-hmm. You know what? The way I look at it, by the time they finish telling the story, I'll be dead. I won't care. I felt good about what I did. Uh, I'd do it again if the same thing happened. Uh, So, you know, the choices that you made, I think were wonderful in what you're doing, too. I was curious, do you have any kids? I do. I have two children, and I have three grandchildren. You're the best. I know you are. You're the best mother, grandmother. Yeah, you are. You're it. So you're a success (laughs) in my eyes. (laughs) Well, you know. Um, I don't know. I, I, I guess I, I was the best person I could be <laughs> at the time. Um, we, you know, um, we all make mistakes as, as parents, but, um, you know, I, I, I hope, um, they agree that, you know, I did a, you know, good job. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they will. They do. It'll go further. As long as you're happy with yourself, you know, it's your peace, it's your life. Yeah, you don't have to hold the secret. You got more room to do something else. So pick up another hobby. <laughs> Get yourself even more out there. Be you. I don't Find out who that. you are. <laughs> Once they start on you, you lose yourself, you know, but you got to go all the way back and find out who the gift you were when you were born and what you like to do. And that's what you should also incorporate with everything else that you're doing um, to make it, you know, awareness all over. That's how we. That's how we survive. Yes, and and I'm sorry to hear that you also had to go through that. And um, 
you know, I admire your bravery to speak up when, you know, the, the um, time was necessary to protect someone else um, because, you know, not everybody, you know, um, can even do that, you know. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. I'm hoping more people who hear you will do that. She's got a very sweetness about you that can get this out there to more people. You just have a sweet voice and a sweet way of um, talking about things. Other ones, you know, who come out screaming because they're so angry and whatnot aren't really the ones that are wanting to be heard. But you... Your voice, just the way, you know, you, you're just very comfortable with yourself. You can feel it, like you feel it through the phone. So it's very important that you did succeed, and you're not done yet. <laughs> I'll see you in 10 years. <laughs> nope, I hope I'm not done yet. <laughs> well, thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you, Lori. Thank you. Hey, Val. This is... Penelope, I I was just going to say, I think, I feel like your voice is, it's so comforting to me as well, because I have family that are in the South, and so I think that Southern accent is, it just feels comforting for the most part. I guess if you have a a mean Southern person in your life, then that might not be the same thing, but (laughs) I I do enjoy hearing Southern accents, so (laughs) I just wanted to pipe in and say that. (laughs) Because <laughs> I'm from Maryland, and um, yeah, oh. I mean we are technically um, south of the Mason-Dixon line, but you know, uh-huh. um, no one ever told me I had a southern accent mm-hmm. until the first time I went to California, and then I I also worked in the Midwest and Detroit and stuff, and people started saying I had a southern accent, and I'm like, I don't have a southern accent. <laughs> <laughs> wrong we we picked up wrong in the accent but it's beautiful even if it's not (laughs) maybe this maybe our blog talk radio is having some fun with us then (laughs) um (laughs) but i you know it's interesting because i remember i read a quote once about um just about making an impact and something along the lines of you know, a thunderstorm, you know, comes in with a bang, uh, but a gentle drizzle over time allows the grass to grow very lush and green. And I always remember that thinking, because I grew up in a very volatile household as well, thinking, you know, you actually can be heard by not screaming and yelling. And I think that's what everyone <laughs> was alluding to tonight with you, um, Val, and I agree. I agree. There is the, you're so comfortable. You can tell you're very comfortable in your skin. And that comes through um, in your dialogue. I agree completely. It it took many years to get there, but um, I I do feel much more comfortable, um, you know, uh, with myself um, when it comes to um, the whole, you know, um, child sexual abuse issue. You know, um, I couldn't have this conversation with anyone. Yes, but it sounds to me like you had said, um, if I remember correctly, and you told your husband, it was almost 30 years uh, before you disclosed um, 
the sexual abuse um, to someone else outside of your and um, that you had mentioned that you know the more you speak um, you know the easier it is and I'm I'm hearing and maybe I'm reading through the lines you know that speaking your truth um, is almost a way to unveil oneself and really sh- be able to show up in the world as who you are with confidence. Um, and maybe it's shedding that shame, but I think I'm hearing that in your story. Yes, I, I agree. It, it is um, part of shedding the, the shame um, because it, it's it's reaffirming that I don't need to be ashamed. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. um, and, and and especially, you know, as, as I go out and, and tell people and, you know, talk about my book and, you know, um, especially in, in some groups that I never thought I would talk about it. Um, and just the, the support, it's, it's like, mm-hmm. I, you know, I know that I'm, first of all, I, I, I know that, you know, I'm not the guilty party here. And I know that I don't have to be ashamed of it anymore. Mhm. Mhm. And that's I think that's a huge people way, but I think when when it's your father and it might be just you know, I feel this way because it was my father, that there's like an added shame to it. You know. Yeah. Um you know, like it it's easier to tell somebody yeah, my uncle did it or the man at the bowling alley that did it. But, you know, when I would say, you know, first time I told somebody it was my father, you know, outside of Michael, like I, I told my best friend, well, I didn't even tell her, like I gave her my book. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I had already told her that, you know, I had been molested as a child, but I wouldn't tell her who. And, right. and then I told her I was, you know, writing this book. And um, when I first gave her the book, she said, I'm not ready to read this yet. And I'm like, oh, good. <laughs> And a couple of weeks later, I went to her house and said, I read your book, and I was in hysterics. Mm-hmm. I, I, mean, I had a total panic attack of it, <laughs> you know, because it, she was the first person outside of my husband that I, you know, had told that, you know, my father did this, and, and she knew my family, and, you know, I was like, oh. Oh God! Like, what did I do? Like, you know, this is like a horrible thing I just told her about. <laughs> um, but I, I don't have that anymore. I don't live with that anymore. So, um, the the more I speak about it, the the more comfortable it becomes. And that is, um, I found that in my own experience, and I, and it's interesting because. I know I felt that the more that knew, <laughs> the more I'd have to hide. And it was the absolute, you know, it was the opposite. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that that's where the hope, yeah, the hope, we talked about hope and healing in the mission statement, and you talked about hope and healing and want to focus more on the healing aspect um, of your uh, story. And, and we're there right now because we have 20 minutes, 25 minutes left, so I definitely want to, to turn that back over to you. But, I, you know, that is um, – if anything, you know, resonates and everybody listening and streaming in, um, there is so much hope um, when disclosure and, and speaking of the truth is um, 
is part of the process and comes out. And, I, and as scary as it is, you know, if you listen to all these, you know, podcasts, and so many times you hear um, the exact opposite of, of, of feeling shame, a shame after disclosing the truth. The absolute opposite happens. And so I'm very curious to hear more about, you know, your healing journey and, um, and what you've done and everything that you have going on and um, um, all the hope that goes along with that. A little bit about the healing journey that the starting process, you know, was going on to daily strength, um, which um, actually happened um, be, before I told my best friend. But um, like I said, I had told her that, you know, I had been molested as a child, but I was like, you know, I'm not going to say who and blah, blah, blah. And then we had a discussion one night at her house about it, and I was, you know, a little upset and on the way home in the car I wrote a poem in my head which is the monsters game which is the signature poem of my um, book and um, I sent it to her and that night I went online and I just googled incest and I was led to the site um, dailystrength.org that it was meant to be you know? <laughs> um, and I, I just, you know, started um, going there every night and eventually started sharing my story or parts of my story and, um, you know, chatting with other people and actually made some terrific friends on there. Um, it, it actually led me to find NASCA um, from that point also. Um, but these people that I met online, like, they understood me. And that was like such a great thing. Like I've never been to therapy, so that was my therapy. Um, you know, what what is better therapy than talking to someone who knows exactly what you've been through, even if their story's a little bit different? Like these people, like they they got it. You know, when I said, you know, I had certain feelings, and they're like, yeah, and they and they validated those feelings, and it was just a, the best place I could have ever. Um, ended up to you know start my healing journey um, and then through that site um, one of the people started a session that um, was called visualized emotion where you could share art and poetry or anything creative um, you know that you were using in your healing and I started sharing my poetry which you know the monsters game was the first one I shared and it's almost like every night I had another poem and and it's like these memories were coming back and I'd write it down in the form of a poem and I'd share it. And then I put all the, you know, just putting them out there, putting them out there. And somebody said, you know, you should put this in a book. And I'm like, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and I, long story short, it became a book. <laughs> um, and that, that whole process just began my whole healing journey. And that, you know, led me to be able to do other things, which, um, you know, I'm into now. So I joined um, Race Foundation, um, I guess, kind of as a volunteer about um, maybe 10 years ago, maybe a little more. Um, and I would just volunteer and you know, make donations and, you know, wasn't doing a whole lot. With, I wanted to do more. And about six years, five or six years ago, um, they redid their board because they didn't have 
a real official board. Um, and I became president of the board, and um, that's really part of continuing my healing because the more I can feel like I have a purpose from my pain, the, the more I can heal. So um, Race Foundation, um, our, our mission is to reduce the number of, you know, um, um, sexual, sexually abused children. And it's a hard thing to measure because we don't really know for sure, you know, how many people we save. But I feel like if I can save one child from going through that, um, it's worth it. So we do education. We have a, a really nice pamphlet. And um, if anyone ever wants a copy of this pamphlet, you can go online to race.org and request one. But um, it, it um, goes through um, explaining what child sexual abuse is and explaining, um, you know, the signs to look for and goes into a lot about prevention. And prevention has a lot to do with looking for the signs. Um, a big, big thing that I like in the book is the circle of trust um, because I think um, in my experience, like with my children and going to like PTA meetings where they have people come in and talk about, you know, um, child abuse, they don't talk about so much about um, people you know. They talk about stranger danger. There's such an emphasis on stranger danger and everything that I've been involved in, you know, when my children were growing up and everything, and it's like stranger danger is only 10% of the problem. Um, so the circle of trust, we ask people to write in, like, people who are in your child's life that you trust and to look at that. And the odds are that somebody in that circle is an abuser. <laughs> so you get people to look at it in a different fashion and not focus so much on the stranger danger. Yeah, we need to protect our kids from strangers, but, um, you know, it, it's the, the um, person – that's in that circle that you really have to worry about They're, you know, more likely 90% of the time, it's going to be somebody in that circle. And by educating people about that circle of trust, um, it does a couple of things because if you're talking about it in your family and amongst your friends, then that perpetrator knows that you're not, you know, one of these naive people sitting back there with blinders and when I don't see it. So they're less likely to abuse your child. Um, and by you educating your children, um, that child is going to be safer because they're going to be more likely to say no or if something does happen to come to you and, and say, you know, tell you that something happened because you've had those discussions ahead of time. When I was four years old, nobody ever said to me, somebody can't touch you in your bathing suit area, you know. Um, so, you know, I didn't know that I should go tell somebody or I could go tell somebody. So that's what we want people to to know, that, you know, teaching your kids these things is going to protect them. You know, it might not prevent it from happening, but it might prevent it from continuing to happen. Um, but hopefully it prevents it from happening because, you know, we, we want those monsters in there. We got your number. We're looking for you. So that's, that's pretty much what we're about at Race. 
Um, and then um, other groups I've been involved in, of course, uh, with NASCA, and I'm always available, you know, to talk to anyone who just needs an ear. Um, I'm um, still a little bit on daily strength, but not not so much anymore. I just um, really it was occupying so much of my time. I had to you know step away from it. Um, but I, I just want to be there for people um, that are survivors, as well as do the education piece to help prevent it. Well, you have so, you're um, such a wealth of resources, a wealth of information right here. I, you know, I really appreciate what you shared so far, especially um, it's something that, we you know, we make note of a lot in the uh, NASCA website under statistics. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, there still is, um, uh, I think, a, just a mindset that, um, the perpetrators are, are, are strange, the strangers out there. Um, and in actuality, look at the statistics, you know, about 90% of, of the perpetrators of sexual abuse on victims are someone that they do know. So the fact that you just made that point, and that is in the ra- um, race, which is R-A-A-C-E dot O-R-G, um, that you're bringing that point home. And I, I think that's very, very important. And what you just said about that, you know, name everybody in your circle of trust, um, I mean, when you look at it within that context, you know, it's very profound, you know, um, that the likelihood of one of those people being um, a potential perpetrator or a perpetrator, um, that's very, very powerful. Uh, I think that there's still some misinformation out there um, about um, who the perpetrators really are. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, I mean, people think, oh, it's, you know, the drunk you know, um, the drug addict, the the dysfunctional mm-hmm. person. You know, um, you know, it's just this perception of a monster. You know, well, yeah, they are monsters, but they hide. <laughs> like you can't, you can't, you don't recognize them as a monster, but they're there. The other statistic right. or- that people. Well, well, I was going to say, or, you know, the victims are those other people who live in those other neighborhoods. And the fact is that's not true. It's you and me and Kim and Lori mm-hmm. and, you know, it's all, you know, it's equal opportunity, unfortunately. This, this, it's not cultural. It's not ethnic. It is, it is everywhere. And it, yeah, it you're is, correct. And when I, um, that I, I've, spoken a few times to groups and one of the questions I will ask a, a group is, you know, um, who who in the audience, you know, knows someone who has been sexually abused as a child. And, you know, of course some people raise their hands and, you know, others don't. And I make the point that everyone here knows someone who has been sexually abused. You just don't know who they are <laughs> because we don't mm-hmm. talk about it. You know. Yeah. Um and people don't know that, you know, one in three girls are sexually abused. You know, and one in, what, there's seven, I don't know, um, that, that statistic changes all the time with boys, but, you know, one in six or seven boys is sexually abused. People don't even think about boys. You know, they're like, oh, I worry about my yeah. daughter getting sexually 
well, you know what, you've got to worry about your son too. And, and right. I was kind of guilty of that, you know, um, when my kids were little. Um, but fortunately, you know, my, my son wasn't abused, but I wasn't as careful with him as I was with my daughter. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, I, I guess I, I kind of knew that boys got abused, but um, it, it wasn't like I, I didn't worry about it as much because I didn't understand it as much as I do now. So, you know, these are things that we have to drive home to people. Like, yeah, you know, it's not just girls you have to worry about. It's not just boys. And, you know, there, there's also, you know, the myth that, you know, um, homosexuals are, are you know, going to be pedophiles. And it's like, no, no, you know, homosexuals are no more likely to abuse a child than a, a straight person. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it, it's like... Um, People are looking in the wrong direction, and if you're looking in the wrong direction, you're going to miss it over here where it's happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's so much work to be done in terms of education. Yes. Yeah, and and I talk to so many different people now, and, um, but, you know, they people are usually shocked by the statistics that I give them. They just you know, are not aware and really, you know, how can that be? Because, you know, if you weren't abused, you're, you know, you think oh, that's something that happens rarely, you know, we go over there, you know, it's other neighborhoods and other families. And, you know, I don't know anybody who's been through that. Well, yes, you do. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Exactly. You didn't know it was until I told you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, and, and, and oftentimes um, we don't want to know, and oftentimes it's because it's personal to us. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, if you, you know, if you, you would have asked me as a teenager going through high school, were you sexually abused? I would have said mm-hmm. I knew I, because I, I couldn't even admit it to myself, and part of it was I didn't right. understand what it was. I didn't really understand where the boundaries were. Um, yeah. I mean, I, well, I knew what it was by then and everything, but I still would have lied. Like, I would have never mm-hmm. like, told somebody, yes. You know, it's like, um, oh, my gosh, that would have been just at the time, like, one of my worst fears was, like, somebody else finding me out. That's why I was, like, the good girl, right. you know. I got to be the good girl. I don't want anybody looking at me and saying, what's wrong with right. her, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. dare allow anybody to see what was underneath. That was that was frightening. No one could know the truth. That was scarier than what was happening. Yeah. Even as thought it's hard to be vulnerable, you know. Um, but you know, it to me you have to look like look at it as any other thing that's going on in somebody's life. You know, um, when you share it, you're vulnerable. Um, and you should be no more ashamed of sharing that you've been sexually abused than if you had cancer, you know. <laughs> um, it's, it, it's not a shameful thing for the person that it happened to. It's shameful for the person that did it. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I want survivors to hear over and over again because, you know, I knew that. 
before I started going to Daily Strength. Like, like if anyone would have come to me and said they were sexually abused, my first thought would be, it's not your fault. But me, I would tell myself, yeah, but you could have done this or you should have did this. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So I, I still would throw the blame back on myself, even though for everybody else, like I totally 100% believe that they were not at fault. But I couldn't convince myself at the time that I wasn't at fault or I couldn't have controlled it or done, done something different or stopped it earlier or, you know, just and anything that I could blame myself for when it came to the, the abuse was my fault. <laughs> you know, I I can totally understand what you're saying, 100%. And there was one day, not it was about five years ago, as I first actually spoke and disclosed of the sexual abuse. Um, it was only six years ago, um, and I'm 53 right now. So I was in my, um, I was 46 years old. And it was about a year after disclosing it um, that I had this moment where um, I had the stuffed animal that was actually put into my bassinet when I was a newborn. His name is Buddy. He's been with me my entire life. And he looks like it. He's totally beaten up. You only he's a little dog. Uh-huh. He only has one ear. He's been so well-loved. So it was about a year after I had only disclosed to my, to my, uh, my therapist, his uh, psychologist, PhD in psychology, what it is first person in my life I had able to trust enough to tell. Um, and I had spoken the words for the first time. So this was about a year later as I'm just sort of living in this new reality of, of being able to speak of the truth. But it dawned on me that Buddy, who had always slept next to me in bed, had been present through it all. And I had this moment of this unbelievable grief that Buddy had been through this, that Buddy had had been subjected to this. Um, oh. I mean, the, the grief was just like a river um, where a deep ocean where the depths of it were so deep, I mean, the grief wouldn't even, can't even, hard to even articulate, you know, this this deep grief and anguish that I felt. And then it struck me, you know, how could I feel this way for my stuffed animal, but I could not feel that for my own self. So I understand what you're saying. You were feeling yourself at that moment, but you weren't letting yourself know that you were feeling that for yourself. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. I could feel it for an inanimate object, but right. And maybe I had transferred Mm -hmm. that. Um, Because I think sometimes you really think about the grief that comes Mm -hmm. with being a victim of sexual abuse. Um, it's a loss that's irretrievable. Um, it's a very deep and profound wound. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I, I think, you know, uh, that it's okay to know that it takes some time um, and to allow yourself to grieve at your own pace. And it's going to come out for me, as, you know, and for you, for anyone, okay, it's going to come out um, as a process, um, and sometimes it's going to be greater than others. The grief is going to feel greater than others, and, and it's just, um, for me, I had to do it in bits and pieces um, in spurts versus um, all at once. Um, 
And I think, you know, you've alluded to that as I've listened to your, I'm sorry, go on. No, you go. No, as I listened to your story and you talked about, you know, your healing process and how it's evolved and, and, um, you know, being involved in in race and being involved with NASCA and in your writing um, and in your disclosures. And to me, I just, I kind of see that process of grieving and, and, you know, and kind of unraveling, you know, kind of peeling back the onion, you know, and to me, the onion, as you unravel it, it does get a little bit smaller, you know, as you shed the shame and you shed, um, I just, as I've envisioned your story, you know, you shed these layers, um, to the point where you, you know, you shine and you show yourself, you know, your true self. Yeah, and I think another part of that um, of healing that people need to understand as they, you know, begin going through it, it's not necessarily a linear process. It, it's not, and, you know, first of all, it doesn't happen overnight. You know, it, it takes a long time um, and sometimes longer than, for some than others, but it's not linear. So, you know, you, you may be, you know, improving and you're going up that hill and, you know, you're, you're feeling pretty good. And then all of a sudden you're back, you know, down three steps from where you were, you're able to, and you might reach a point where like, I can't handle what I'm going through right now. So you regress a little bit, but that's okay because when you start moving forward, you're still further ahead and you keep going further and ahead. And before you know it, you know, at some point, you know, you, you feel so comfortable with who you are and what you've been through that it, it's not that it doesn't matter anymore, but it, it doesn't control you. You know, it yeah. doesn't have power over you. Exactly. 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 Someone once said to me, it's like a faucet that's always running. You know, in the beginning of the healing journey, you hear it, you know it's there. But eventually, um, as you go through the process, the faucet maybe, you know, will be running in the back in the background, but you may not even notice it. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's true. Yeah. Because I think you know, it's a loss. Uh, it is a loss. Um being sexually abused as a child is a, is, is a loss of innocence. Um, and I feel like, you know, I've given myself permission to grieve that loss when I need to. I don't think it's something I'll ever get over. You know, I don't like it when people just get over it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you, you learn to move forward. And, and your story definitely have, have exemplified that. Yeah, I tell people you don't get over it. It, it, it's like a death, you know, a grieving. You don't get over it. You learn to live with it. Exactly. You know, um, because, it, you know, you shouldn't get over it. You know, um, it, it's part of who you are. And it's part of what has shaped you, um, good, bad, or indifferent. Um, so it, it's not about getting over it. it. It's learning to live with that as part of your life. And for you, it's very obvious that living with it is, is, is doing the advocacy work and continuing to be involved and continuing to write mm-hmm. and um, continue to tell your story. Um, and I so appreciate you coming on tonight because you've inspired me. And I know with so many listening um, and so many who will listen to the shows archived, you 
um, are helping so many people. And I just really wish to thank you. It was really a pleasure having you on the show tonight. Thank you for having me. And I'd like to put in a real quick plug for my um, latest book collaboration um, um, with Dr. Pamela Pine. Um, It's Stop the Silence, and it's available on Amazon. Um, I feel like it's a great project, not just because I was in it, but there's, um, you know, so many people told their story. And it's not just about telling the story. It's how we healed you know, what process we went through to heal. And, you know, everybody had a different story of how they, you know, um, find their healing. So um, I encourage everyone to, to pick it up. I, I think it's um, it, it, it it's a great book because it talks about the healing. Like we can all tell our story. And, you know, we, we've heard the story many times if we're a survivor. But um, I, I always like to focus on the healing part of it. And that's what this book does. Thank you, Val. So it's in the hyperlink to the show. It's scan number. If I can get there, there in a moment. But it's in the hyperlink. It's called Stop the Silence, Thriving After Child Sexual Abuse by Dr. Pamela Pine and 23 Sexual Abuse Survivors. So I wish to thank Val for coming on tonight. Lori, Kim Lakin, um, Philip, thank you all for being on. As I always say before I close up the show, there are enough adult eyes and ears on this planet to keep every single one of our children safe. If you see something, you hear something, take action. Please say something, do something. It is our responsibility to keep all of our children safe. Thank you all and good night. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.